Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. And after the live broadcast, you'll be able to download this program uh, from 21st Century Wire and also at iTunes for our podcasting community. Thank you for rejoining us. Uh, in this segment now, we've got a special guest uh, with us. Uh, he is uh, a veteran uh, of the Syrian conflict over the last six years, fighting on the front lines uh, with the Syrian army. And his name is Patrice. Uh, he's joining us on the live link right now. Uh, thank you for joining us, Patrice. Pleasure is mine. Good afternoon to you and good afternoon to all the people with you. We really appreciate you joining us. And, you know, you've got an incredible story, Patrice, and we're hoping that you can share some of that with us this week on this show. Just firstly, I'll let you sort of introduce yourself. And, you know, firstly, you know how we want to find out, you know, about your experiences. Obviously, our listeners are very well versed in this conflict, but um, there's a lot of untold stories that haven't really made it out into the press and I think this war in general has been covered very poorly by the mainstream media, specifically in the West, the United States, and Europe. Uh, the coverage has been very skewed, and I think uh, a lot of things have been mischaracterized. And I think to marginalize, let's say, the, Syri- the, the country of Syria, the government of Syria, and so forth. And um, firstly, just, just tell us uh, about yourself and how, how you ended up fighting in this war. Okay. Um, I mean, what you're saying is correct. And uh, sadly, is when you're there, you sort of watch uh, foreign news and it's all one-sided. And uh, to someone that living there is completely irrelevant and it's not, no truth in it at all. In 2011, uh, obviously, we were having the recession in Europe, if you remember from uh, 27 until 2010. So there was good opportunities to do some business in Syria. And uh, I actually drove there. I got in my pickup truck, not pickup truck, a Tahoe. And I thought I'd go and see what it's like there for an opportunity. And uh, I was quite impressed. You know, I wasn't expecting what I've seen in an Arabic country that is the third world. So obviously it was quite advanced, was opening up. And uh, uh, for my businesses that I was into, uh, there was a good opportunity. So I thought I'll study the market, see what I can sort of uh, sell there or take there or what have you. And uh, I picked up a couple of brands and uh, came back to the UK, took the brands, obviously Italian brands, went back there. That was 2011, summertime, sort of like uh, June 2011. Unfortunately, the trouble started uh, sort of uh, aggravating itself there. And uh, I spent the summer uh, there, made some contacts and stuff, what have you. Beginning of 2012, the war sort of started breaking up in certain parts of Syria. And I thought probably a good time to exit now. I don't want to be caught up with that, obviously, as my kids and my family, they're all like in the UK and Europe. And the first run, first time I felt like threatened or even attempt on my life is uh, it was around uh, maybe January, February 2012 uh, on the Turkish border. Got there, there was a petrol station just before an area called Kilis which is like a well-known border crossing. Uh, as I was filling up my vehicle with petrol, obviously, to exit Syria, there was no one there. There was a little police, and no police at all, actually. 
a little kid about 14, 15, pulled an AK-47 on me after I filled up the vehicle and asked me to dismount. Uh, lucky enough, from my, my experience, I managed to go to overpower the guy and uh, take his weapon and get in my car. As I was about to head towards Turkey, I saw two motorbikes, like little one, two, five scooters, and each one of them had like three guys on them. And they were all carrying weapons, so I thought that was his backup coming towards me. And they start firing towards me, obviously. They didn't hit me or hit the vehicle. So I got in the vehicle and went back into Aleppo itself. And uh, I formed the, uh, I informed the local police and the local sort of uh, military units that this is what happened. And somebody was trying to kill me and take my vehicle. And they said, uh, okay, we'll, we'll investigate it. Nothing happened. Nothing came from it. After a couple of months, I tried to exit again, but this time I didn't make it as far as the border as uh, three vehicles got shot front of my vehicle, and then it was aiming at my vehicle. So I turned around and came back, and uh, since then I couldn't exit. They've taken over the border, what you call the rebels, which is, to me, is ridiculous. There's no such thing as rebels like. To me, it was all like money orientated, and that's what it was. And then following that, there was a siege on Aleppo. Uh, as a Christian, as a Catholic, I couldn't go through their areas because we had no safety net, because they were like extremes. Uh, you know, if you were not Sunni, if you were not with them, or if you lived in town, or if you lived in an area where, uh, I'd say, uh, a government uh, controlled you considered as an enemy and mm -hmm. uh, basically you're either beheaded caught for a ransom and it happened to a lot of people i knew that uh, even when they pay the ransom they send them the head instead of sending the person and it was just like that so i had no option and aleppo got tightened up tightened up and literally aleppo was about three little areas like a size of uh, Let's say, I don't know what to give you, like a rough idea, like size of central London, let's say, between, let's say, Nicebridge, uh, Leicester Square, and Covent Garden. That was Aleppo. And it was surrounded. And obviously, uh, we had no option. I had no option but to fight. You know, I couldn't go through them. Uh, I couldn't get out. And if I didn't fall, I got killed. Basically, that was the scenario. So i gone and I'm a commander of a big unit and I started training my soldiers because they had no training. Uh, weapons is poor. We're basically, like uh, for every hundred you get, uh, your, your typical AK-47 and you get, uh, you got no heavy weapons. You got a lot of soldiers had to buy their own ammunition. We had to buy our own uniforms. We had to buy our own food. You know, literally it was a struggle. But it was a struggle for survival. We had no option. Basically, most people who fought, fought for their survival more than anything else, not for uh, anyone else, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how it went, basically, from uh, from 2012. Um, and Aleppo, no one, no one spoke about Aleppo. And Aleppo suffered more than any other city. You know, like, uh, for example, where I was living was predominantly a Christian area. There was a lot of bombing daily bases, like in my street, in my area. You know, you could say at least between 18 to 28 mortars a day. So people got scared. People paid a lot of money to the opposition to let them go through them. 
you know, uh, the factories got robbed, everything got robbed. Food, we didn't have any food. Basically, like a pound of tomatoes, rotten tomatoes would cost, let's say, 800 pounds in their money, which is normally about 20 pounds. You know, uh, no petrol, no heating, no water, all got cut off. A uh, lot of diseases, a lot of stuff. And uh, we worked on a defensive basis till 2015. Literally, it was just saving our lives. And uh, Aleppo itself was uh, formed of, uh, what do you call it? About eight fronts, frontiers, you know, like eight points where there's battles on a daily basis. Minimum, we had like two, two and a half to three hours battles a day on each front. Wow. Uh, and uh, we started liberating slightly, slowly, sort of expand, uh, which is the first operation I did personally was in 2013. And that was the first time I exit Aleppo. You know, uh, obviously we liberated certain areas, which uh, the the area was called the Erin, which is near the airport. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started from there, and it took us to 2015. Obviously, a lot of a lot of fine, a lot of tactical stuff, and uh, we lost a lot of people, obviously as well. But the sad thing about it, you know, everybody tells you is. Uh, you know this religious sort of point of view mm-hmm. that uh, Sunni fighting Shiites, and I mean me being a Christian, I had no role there. You know they're, they're like minority, and the Shiites and Alawites are minority, but the irony of it, my fighters. I mean I commanded three hundred fighters in general. Ninety nine point nine percent of them are Sunni. Don't want these radical people to take control. You know like. Everything they get is theirs. You know, they, they for example, they, they take a village, they uh, kill the men, kill the boys, the women, they turn them into slaves. They turn them into what you call them, like uh, jihadi women. They have to jihad in, by having sex, but with loads of people. Like, weird, weird stuff. Like, I mean, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't want to use them for that reason, they sell them in markets which is a common thing with ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, and if you live there in, under their rule, it's like extreme, extreme sort of uh, what they call it, their Wahhabi, which is like going back to 1,500 years ago, you know, the woman's got no right and she's got to do everything. Uh, it's legit to marry a girl of seven and five and six. That's fine. Weird, weird stuff, you know. And uh, the irony of it is just like whenever they hit us in town, like Aleppo, that, that was surrounded by them. I mean, the sad thing is 90% of the civilian or, or Muslim Sunni like them. Hence the reason the Sunni that were like on the government side, living on the, they were working with the government and they didn't want that. And uh, all we kept hearing from like TV channels abroad that basically they, they made it out. The army is the terrorist and they're the good guys which is completely the opposite. I mean, luckily, you can see the videos all posted all over YouTube and stuff like that. You know, in yeah. one uh, one battle, a soldier of mine went to take, sorry, I mean, went to piss, literally like a room forward. Three minutes later, we thought he didn't come back. I sent two scouts to see where he is. They went there and they found his head on the floor and his bodies disappeared. You know, there was no... You know, it was all scary, what do you call it? All their tactics to scare you. 
all their tactics is, you know, it's, uh, it's not just, you know, in a war you shoot people, they die, this and that, but to them that wasn't enough. You know, you got to behead the person, you got to chop him up, you got to do this, you got to do that, which is not humane anyway. And uh, if they catch a soldier or something, it's always like they ask for uh, ransom and uh, at the end of it they behead him live. And recently they beheaded uh, a 13-year-old boy who had nothing to do with the conflict. He wasn't even Syrian, he was a Palestinian refugee, which was all over the news, I think you heard of it. Yeah, uh, yeah, the same the same thing like in Damascus about four months ago. Some guy sent his daughter, who's nine year old, who can't even speak properly, and he's seven year old for uh, what you call it to be a martyr. And she mm-hmm. exploded herself in a in a police station, for example. Uh, you know, uh, it's what we used to see in Taliban, if you remember the days of Taliban and the strictness they done it and the backwardness. That's what they wanted to enforce there. But reality of the matter, the people there don't want that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been characterized through the last six years as these are the rebels who are, you know, they want a democracy in the Middle East and the uh, the Assad, President Assad, is, is brutally repressing the Sunni majority's desire for a democracy in Syria. That's basically how the story has been scripted uh, in the in the Western media for the last six years, basically. To, so, to be to be know. honest with you, you look at you look at the town itself, to Syria, for example. Like Aleppo was like uh, the industrious sort of zone of Syria, and the revenue of the whole government, the country, was like seventy percent come out of Aleppo, which hasn't got petrol, just the factories in it. And these factories, for example, when the war started, first thing this factory got dismantled and sold into the, you know, they literally, their, their, their aim is to destroy the country. The wealthiest people in Syria are Sunni. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've got friends of mine, like uh, there is, a, for example, a guy called Farish Shabi, which is a well-known guy. It's one of the wealthiest people, you know, they, they, they're actually living, living better than we live in Europe. But the people who want, you know, in my opinion, it's two, two reasons to destroy Syria. A, they don't want it to be advanced and be a threat to, the, to Europe or, let's say, to our neighbors, the Israelis or whatever it is. That's one thing. And the second thing is the dispute over the petrol lines and the gas lines. Because Qatar and Saudi wanted their stuff, you know what I mean, to come true. And Syria, like, it's, it's such a complicated thing. But the religious factor is, is nothing to do with it. The people there in town, people who live yeah. there, the security of the Sunni don't want radicals because they're happy how they are. They want their, their, their daughters, their kids, their wives to work, to uh, study, to that. Under the other ones, under the jihadis, whatever they call it, they can't do all that. You know, you got no, you can't, like, you got no freedom. You can't have TVs, you can't have this, you can't have that, you can't study, you can't educate yourself. That's not what the people want there. People there want to keep their religion. But they don't want to kill you because of your religion. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh, this this religion story, like, it's ridiculous. Real fact is, uh, I mean, good example, like my soldiers who gave their life, they're all Sunni. If they were convinced that, and, you know, and it wasn't for the money. You can't say, you know, they're fighting for the money. Because their wage is, like, ridiculous, like equivalent to about $20 a month. And you're putting your life on the line. So... You know what I mean? So it's not like us that is giving them thousands of dollars and, 
you know, come and fight and do this and do that. No, no, they wanted to fight for their way of living, their way of thing, and this is just uh, ridiculous. I mean, I don't know how to put it any other way. They're, they're patriots at, at the end of the day, and, and they're fighting for their families, they're fighting for their families' yeah. Uh, yeah. relatives, they're, you know, they're fighting for their country, like, like, like any really good patriot would do in, in that situation, yeah. no matter where they are in the world. But That's somehow correct. they've been That's demonized correct. and villainized by the Western politicians, by the media, in a really egregious manner that I, I just find amazing. If the shoe is on I the mean, other foot, you know. I think any country in the world, anywhere in the world, you got every right as a government to defend against terrorism, to defend against armed people, In you know what I mean? And and it's free there. You can say what you like. You know, it's not like what people make out. You can't speak. You can't do. The judicial system is good. I mean, I got me as a commander. I got stopped and put in prison for forty-eight days just mm-hmm. for a misunderstanding. But then when they investigated, and I was right, they let me go. Which is, it's a bit extreme, but it's right. Mm-hmm. You know, I I saved the guy from some group kidnapped him. I saved the guy from kidnapping and killing. You know, they were going to kill him, basically, and they were asking for ransom. I saved them. Because I saved them too quickly, within six hours, the one that kidnapped him, or pretended. And I said, fine, we'll go get your stories right. And, you know, I'm, I'm willing, if, if you think it's me, prove it's me, it's the other way around. And, okay, it was fine. You know, I think I think the judicial system is good. Maybe it's a little bit over the top, but it's good. At least you get your chance, you get your thing. Fine as well, like, you know, we had kids like volunteering to be in the army, but we wouldn't take them in because obviously the law, you got to be 18. So the six years I was there, I had kids like I've known from the beginning of the conflict. They waited as they got to into 18 years old. They came and joined our forces because these people lived. They, they didn't want to live under pressure. They didn't want to live under someone's control. They want their normal life. They want to study. They want to prosper they they want their religious to themselves they don't want to force it on you and then they want no one dictating how what you should eat where you should sleep what even to a point they said that dad dad cannot sit with his daughter alone in a room imagine this i mean i've got three daughters you know i can't imagine myself not sitting down and cuddling my daughters you see what i mean they're like yeah in their world. for the dad to sleep to, to yeah to send the son with his mom imagine they said to, to what degree I mean, even, uh, I don't know what they call it, even they said, like, recently, ISIS, they come up with this, uh, I don't know what they call it in English, but, uh, like, their, their, their prince or their sheikh proves to them, they said, guys can sleep with each other, guess for what? The point behind it is if they want to go on a, on a martyrdom or carry explosive, they can carry it in the backside easier than... You know what I mean? Like it's weird stuff you hear. You think, oh my like, God. where, yeah, where they come from? These people, and even another thing recently they come up with that. I mean, probably I don't know if you heard it or not. That a guy can sleep with his sister or his mum if he's on the battle uh, front for more than a week. Oh like, God! Imagine this stuff. Like, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's just uh, medieval, bar- barbaric sort of yeah, uh, yeah, 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 regressive like, stuff. Yeah, like, for example, they talk, they take over a village. The boys and the men usually are killed. 
That's no dispute. Then the women, the, the old ones and the young ones, either they use them for what they call uh, in Arabic, jihad and nikah, which is, uh, I don't know what the term for it in English, but these girls are like a sexual uh, uh, machine for all the fighters. So in their, in their uh, eyes, it's legal for them, basically, to... It's like a whorehouse, but for fighters. And what right. they do is it's a complete joke. Like, Sheikh will be there, and this fighter comes in, and he'll marry this, what I consider a prostitute, without money, you know? Yeah. He'll marry her for the hour, sleep with her, come out, say you're divorced, and that's legal. So yeah. he'll walk out, and the next one will come in. Like, as good as anywhere, any whorehouse, basically. But, yeah. You know, it's, it's weird stuff. Like, reality is as well, like, we, in, in certain operations, like, we've gone into their houses, and you see the leaders there, their leaders, what, their princes. They're living, like, they got all kind of alcohol in there, serious amount of money, gold, like, bunch of thieves. They even, between each other, like, you uh, you probably keep hearing like every month or two like some certain commander get killed and somebody else take his place yeah and it's all money all money orientated money you know what i mean they just be, become a commander rip off the area fight between each other get as much money as he can and then he exit like a lot of them now living in europe with multi-millions of dollars they own which they stole from there for example and and, you know, I say so it's just not right. And I think uh, at one point we, we thought we lost, the, we lost the battle, to be honest with you. Uh, our battles got very aggressive. We had no support. Our fighters want that experience, to be honest with you, because a lot of the soldiers were dying of lack of experience. You know, basic of fighting, they don't know how to fight. And it's all street fighting there, you know. Mm-hmm. Like on some, some battle fronts between us and between between us and the enemy like anything from 2.5 meters to 12 meters so yeah it's ridiculous and uh it taught us a lot you know it, it war teaches you a lot of things how to adapt how to even teach you to be a better fighter like you see people die in front of you for no reason you get you know what i mean yes so, uh, yeah sadly it's not it's not what people what the west sort of puts it to be you know they got these white helmets i mean for fuck's sake white helmets we know them like literally the same guy that is wearing white helmet you see him the following evening or the next evening or the day before with jamit and nasra which is like uh, al-qaeda which is a, a well-known terrorist organization you know how could you i don't know i don't know when we liberated Aleppo, they said they had no food, and all the all the, the newspaper and like sort of uh, European agencies, let's say, you know, they were all crying about them. You know, in my in my own eyes, we liberated. We got uh, a mortar warehouse. I got it myself. Me and my soldiers. There was two tons of wheat inside that. Wow. You know, two tons of wheat. You know what you could do with that? You could do enough bread for hundreds of thousands of people. All these. Uh, UN, uh, what you call it, packages that they send them, like sort of food and ace loads of them. And the people who came to our side, who actually run away and they were shot by them because they come into the government side, you know, they started talking. They said, you either fight with them to get the food or you do services for them or you pay through the nose to get that food. 
And first we thought it was just stories so we can feel sorry for them. But when we liberated it, it was amazing. I mean, A, they had medical equipment. I think in Europe we don't have it. You know, MRI scanner, I think in the whole of Syria there is one. And we found three in one street. You know, for example, just to give you an idea of the backup they got, mm -hmm. uh, the amount of food is enough to feed all of Aleppo. And it was all just like, just thought, you know, in, in, in the military compound, it's not like, you know what I mean? So basically these people controlled and propagandized the way they wanted Europe to see it. But they had everything. You know, we had fighters running away from a battlefield Right, uh, coming to our side and just throwing their weapons, they say, "Please, you know, I don't want this. I'm forced this. You know, they 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 threaten me if I don't fight with them, they'll kill my family that is living there. You know, and it happened a lot. So, <clears throat> unfortunately, to the West, is completely different than what it is on the ground. You know, as a military personnel, as a commander, my post never got hit by mortars." from the enemy, the only places that they hit, and I've showed it to people, you know, the only places got hit is civilians' places. And the majority either Christian or the Muslim Sunni, which is like them. So their propaganda is to empty the town and kill as many as possible and scare them off to get out. And, uh, you know, but thank God is you know, is working at the moment. You look at the town, I mean, I left about a week ago, and the town is prospering, there was food, uh, they started connecting the water, uh, they said the electricity about a week to two weeks. So all this stuff, we, we lost it five years ago, not, not just a week ago, five years there was no water. You know, wow. we, we, had, we had to drink water from like, rivers, which is uh, filthy, and uh, we, had to, we had no petrol, no diesel, no food, proper food, everybody eating like crap, basically. Mm. And nobody said anything about it in the West. They were right, we were wrong. We were the terrorists, that's what they're saying, you know. Like, they were the good people. And, you know, I don't think you've ever seen a Syrian soldier eating someone's heart or liver or beheading someone. You know, as a soldier, it's not his job, you know, his job to defend, not to do these, what, consider like, beyond the humane stuff yeah i mean the whole time you know for the la especially from uh, when they started uh, in the west they they launched this media campaign aleppo is burning aleppo is burning this was all very yeah. well synchronized yeah. and high financed public relations uh campaigns and they were saying we need uh john Kerry, our politician samantha power at the u.n we need to open up humanitarian corridors for the people of aleppo because uh the syrians and the russians are targeting hospitals targeting civilians and schools killing children etc child killers they were calling the syrian army okay and uh president assad and so what you're saying is the humanitarian aid that did get into east aleppo which was the terrorist occupied part of the city they were then the the, the al-nusra would hoard or al-zinki or or Arau sham or whoever they are would have hoarded yeah, the aid. Was controlling everything yeah so they hoarded the aid they kept it they sold it at extortionate prices to yeah. residents uh or they yeah. made them work for their food so they yeah. that that was the, those are the sort of the rebels that the west has been supporting right yeah and they didn't just get that that same time and when they opened the corridor the first time, which is a well-known fact, 
they gave them weapons as well. They gave them grad missiles, and they gave them a long-range grad missile. And we found ammunition that was dated like 2016. Wow. Brad new and like top of the range as well. I mean, I, I found, uh, what do you call it, ammunition that could last the Syrian army, not just Aleppo, for maybe two years of battle. And it's all brand new. Like dust didn't have time to, to accumulate over the boxes. So they wasn't just giving them food. They were giving them food, but they were screwing people with the food. But at the same time, they were giving them weapons. They gave them 100 tanks as well from Turkey. And I think, I mean, they were saying on their own TV that they received 200 missiles. But in my opinion, much more than that. Because in one day, they hit the airport with 80 missiles. And when they attacked Aleppo, they did attack it when they were supposed to liberate it. Apparently, you know, we had like, on a daily basis, between 200 to 280 rockets, Grad rockets, which is a destructive rocket. And uh, next to my house, like, for example, one of the rockets hit market. And that market was full of like little students and women. You know, we went, me and my unit, we cleared 18 buddies and there were one buddies in one piece. They were like bits and pieces. Okay, these civilians, these from your religion, why are you killing them? So, yeah, it's all all uh, ridiculous. Uh, the Russian and the Syrian, to my knowledge, they said, fine, you know, we want to check the stuff before it goes to them. But they didn't want that. They wanted the stuff to reach the Nasra without being controlled. Or And the Syrian army, every time... It, accepted the ceasefire, they prepared themselves, got stronger, got more weapons, and attacked Aleppo even more. I mean, don't forget, they attacked Aleppo three times, and it was lethal. If you remember, you know, we lost the academy, we lost the, uh, what we call it, the the artillery school, and these schools that are well-known defensive points. So Aleppo was on the brink of falling down to them, but obviously, uh, they just, it didn't happen, you know, thank God. Uh, and when we hit, I mean, this is this is a civilian from their side told me this story. Uh, that was recently when we started liberating. I was saying, I was saying to him, uh, why we hit them where they are. Uh, actually, he said to me, he said to me, you know why why people saying you hitting civilians? I said why. He said because, for example, let's say uh, an anti-aircraft gun for Nostra. Yeah. Fire at the Syrian army from a normal point. He'd go into a civilian area and launch an attack. Obviously, as a defensive, you have to hit it. So I have to hit him back wherever he is. And that's the thing they used in the tactic quite a lot. They use uh, uh, human, like like human shields. You know, they say, okay, if we fire from a civilian area, uh, they're not going to fire at us. You yeah. see what I mean? That's exactly what they're. That's exactly what they're doing in Mosul now in Iraq, and exactly the same. And, and now it's come out, and they're make, It's sort of been finally getting some uh, coverage over the last couple of days. But you know, our RT and other outlets, and we've been saying this for months. This is the tactic they've been using for years in Aleppo, and it was complete tactics for the yeah. last six years. If they tell you otherwise, don't believe it. Look, whenever they take an area. Like now, recently in Damascus, if you heard Jobber and that, yeah, the army when it feels like it's gonna do a lot of damage for uh, what you call it, the civilian, it, it pulls back. 
and then it prepares itself. It saves as many civilians out, and then it goes back in. And this has been our policy. You know, uh, if I tell you this, this is actually quite a crucial point. Uh, the war started in 2012 officially. We had orders from the high command of the military. We are not allowed to carry weapon visibly or fire at an enemy without an order. Do you believe that? Wow. So we used to we used to get fired at, and by law we cannot fire at them back. That was an official order. Yeah, you know wow. that that was like probably one of the hardest time of the fight. You know, you sitting in a corner behind a couple of sandbags and people firing at you. You got the weapon, but you can't fire back. And that's you know basically to to avoid bloodsheds and maybe to calm it down. And it didn't work. The more we did like that, the more aggressive they got. You see mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And. Uh, you know, I mean, good thing is they done their own publicity. I mean, you could see it all over YouTube. You know, they, it wasn't for them just killing. It's 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 unreal. I mean, I've, I've seen it in battle. You know, I choose someone, for example, an enemy in a battle who's attacking me, and this guy is under so much drugs and uh, what you call keptagon and stuff like that. You actually have to shoot the guy like eighteen times till he drops. Not because it's not that the amount of drugs in them is is unbelievable as well. And we found it in places we liberated. We found needles. We found, you know, how can you associate drugs with extreme religious? Sure. Wow. And so, you know. and, and so, what 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 was? I mean, you've seen some of the, um, you know, faced faced with some of the Al Nusra type fighters. And would you say, and according to you know what Syrians have told you, you're your your unit you know how many of these are foreign fighters and how many of them are from syria what what do you think the breakdown is percentage wise based on what you've learned okay, this is this is on my own experience first of all the foreign ones are extremely highly trained and professional soldiers as fighters out of all the units that we fought there i would say al nusra probably the strongest fighters and tactically they're superior than anyone else so basically, when you find someone like that, the foreign, particularly the foreign one, you got the Turkmenistani and you got the Shishnian and you got uh, like Moroccans, Tunisians, Saudis. These yeah. I'd consider the mercenaries because you know I'm, I'm I'm a professional soldier, so I can tell when someone trained well, uh, how they move, how they fight, how tactically advanced they are. And some of them are extremely, like, they're probably the most aggressive fighters I've ever fought in Nusra. Then you get the ISIS, which I put them second to Nusra. Again, the, their foreign soldiers are their professional soldiers. So I think these soldiers being bred for a long time ago, you know, like uh, trained for not just for a week or two, they're trained for years. Even, even actually, another good point. We call a lot of people smuggling weapons, uh, and these people have uh, declared that they have been smuggling weapons since 2005 and wow. receiving money since 2005. So the war is not just an overnight war, and it's not just because of they want. It's well organized, well, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, well paid for, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and 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 the propaganda they use, like for example, you know, it's 
you got Al Jazeera, which is purely to their side. You got uh, Sky News Arabic, which is thousand yeah. percent. You know, and you got the BBC was the same. Uh, France 24, the thing. You know, you think these all sort of companies run and owned in the Middle East by the Saudis. And Saudis are probably the biggest supporters. And Turkey played the even worse role because Turkey had no border. Literally, like, every single fighter that we call, let's say, foreigner, his, his last stamp on his papers or whatever he is, is Turkey. And then he just walks through. You know what I mean? And uh, that's, that's, that's a, you know, when they tell you Turkey's fighting terrorists, Turkey brought in most of these fighters in because they had no other way to get in. Jordan had a little role as well, but not as big as Turkey. Uh, obviously, Iraq is on the border. ISIS, when they expanded in Iraq, you know, they open up the border as well. Mm-hmm. But ISIS is different than the Nasra. ISIS does not, like, for example, ISIS take a, take a village of let's say, the, what they call themselves, the Syrian Free Army. They do not take the fighters to their side. You see what I mean? Where a Nusra make them become soldier with them. Right, right. So, completely two evil units, but each one works on its own way. And ISIS work cleverly, I think, because the areas they, they took initially... Is oil-rich areas or uh, wheat-rich areas. Uh, if you look at it, actually study where they took, it's all financially viable. And they made billions of dollars selling like all the petrol from Syria. Syria, I didn't realize, is like the richest Arabic country in the Middle East. Nobody ever assumed that it was. I always thought it was Saudi. Mm-hmm. And all the petrol till now have been sold to Turkey illegally, from ISIS to Turkey, and it's proven as well. Even the Russians showed videos of it, and globally is well known. Uh, how, could you, how could you buy from a terrorist? Mm. If the whole world is fighting ISIS, how could you, when you're buying from a terrorist, what it means, you're supplying him. You know, uh, how, what, what does that mean to you? I mean, you, uh, you know, being in Europe, you know, Europe is part of NATO, we have the NATO alliance and all the NATO member states. And Turkey is a NATO member state. And here yeah. we have a NATO member state, which, in your opinion, if Turkey wasn't facilitating all of this and hosting all the fighters in Gaziantep and all this, how you know, the, the, would the war be over two years ago, do you think, if Turkey hadn't played this role as a NATO country? I it's think, incredible. I think if it wasn't the organization of Turkey and the support of Europe, and they would not have reached 1% what they reached. Because everything they had is too advanced to be just a bunch of rebels. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, like, uh, you know, for example, I used, I used a lot of Google Earth for my walk, you know, to map the area. To con- you see what I mean? Some areas would stay on Google Earth six months with the cloud over it, we can't see the area. Uh-huh. Now, you need support to do this. You can't just say, you know, if a picture's like updates itself every 24 hours or three days or four days, a cloud could not stay over an area where it's in the Middle East for like six months. Mm-hmm. 
that's part of their support, you know, so that stops my attack on them and gives them the liberty to attack me. You see what I mean? So I think Europe, NATO, even even the United States, how many times it supposedly by mistake dropped weapons and uh, guns and ammunition to ISIS? Well, in fact, it's even videoed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, accidentally destroy a, com- a complete fleet of Syrian defense forces while they fight in ISIS. How could that happen? In in Raqqa recently, if you heard of it, a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, 180 soldiers got destroyed. Uh, artillery point got destroyed. Even the, the, the station that supplies Aleppo with electricity which is called like, um, uh, they call it there in Arabic, Hattar um, Harariya. Uh, it's destruction done by, by, by American air fighter jets. It wasn't by ISIS. And ISIS had it under their control for like four years. Wow. So, so there is a lot of things. I mean, obviously, I have to excuse my head because obviously six years, I can't remember everything at once because... It's, it's, you know, uh, it's just, uh, I don't know. Even, I'll give you just a little story to show you how brutal they are. We were liberating one section of Aleppo. uh, And it was like uh, door-to-door combat, room-to-room. You know what I mean? We cleared, like, the first four building. We got into the fifth building, which was their second defense line. Uh, One fighter with me saw a baby naked in the middle of the room. I mean, these are their electrum, obviously, with no furniture and stuff. Uh-huh. So he went to lift the baby up, and the baby was booby-trapped. Oh, my God. You know, what kind of soldier in any 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 military in the world would booby-trap a baby? Well, and and these are the rebels that that, that were, were arming and backing in the West. Um, That's it. That's it. Unbelievable. What what about their ton? Did they were they digging tunnels um, under Aleppo? Because you know, is this how they evaded? Um, Aleppo you know? was the war of Aleppo was called. I've, I've, I've mm-hmm. got map from their commanding officers when we like attacked them, and they call it the tunnels war of Aleppo. Uh, their war is all tunnels. So basically, when an aircraft hits or or a fighter jet hits them, it doesn't actually do any damage, any fatality, uh, which which I found it surprising. But obviously, as we got better experience, we started knowing what's happening. Uh, they got points of control. So on their radios, which we listen to a lot, <clears throat> as an aircraft takes off of an airport, they start sending the alarms where it's heading, where it is. And what protects them is these tunnels. So the, the aircraft, what it does, it just does... Uh, in my opinion, does a damage just like uh, to walls and stuff like that. But actually, in killing, it's, it's ridiculous. It, it doesn't help us at all. It helps us in attacking, you know, just to scare them off so we can attack. And then once we're in, we can obviously deal with them one to one or two to one, whatever it is. But realistically, like uh, the Air Force, uh, more, yeah, not. The Air Force, like the tunnels we found, probably you got all the pictures on the net. Serious amount of tunnels. Some tunnels would fit a tank in them. Wow. 
And and Aleppo, uh, going back in history, the castle of Aleppo, the old castle, uh, is actually from the castle tunneled out to the outskirts of Aleppo. And they reckon there is over 80 tunnels. How, How many again? 200, 280 tunnels. These going back like 2,000 years old. Right. Initially. And and after that, they dug, I mean, their, their war is all tunnels. Every area we take is full of tunneling. You know, uh, rooms in under the ground, ammunition under the ground, fighters under the ground. <clears throat> we got attacked quite a lot that they come through us, like from under the ground, you know, like they obviously know the area they come out in a place where it's not protected or where we feel is safe a lot yeah, a lot like that happened you know a lot of a lot of surprise and i started using that against them as well you know i started using it as a tactic you know because they were not expecting me to do that with them so i started digging towards them uh, in one, one operation i got in liberated like a massive zone with 20 soldiers and basically, ten of them was in a tunnel. I dug it for a month till I got to the heart of their uh, uh, headquarter, and that was a successful operation as well. You know, so but they relied on tunnels quite a lot. I'd say ninety percent of their fight. And you know, and before before this, you know, your experience, um, your you know, what was roughly your military experience? I mean, sur- surely had had you seen this level of fighting or this type of um, you know intense violence and dealt with terrorism before, or was this a learning experience for you? Well, I learned a lot in it, but I've had experience before. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a trained like uh, you could say special forces, but mm-hmm. obviously trained one thing and doing it for real is one thing yeah you know training you do three months tactical and how to move and how to operate weapons and lightweight obviously but in a real battle it, it just teaches you a lot you know and you become on an autopilot you know you do stuff you don't know you know if you know what i mean and it does does give you a serious amount of experience you know we lost a lot of soldiers because they don't know how to take cover you know, they they died for nothing, I would say. You see what I mean? Yeah. So you get to learn how to take cover properly. Uh, it's different than when you're doing, a, a, let's say, a military camp. It's completely different. You can't compare it at all. At all. You know, at one point for three, four years, certain areas, we couldn't cross the street. Like, I had to dig holes through walls to reach the other street because if I go across it, you know, I got like six to seven snipers <clears throat> controlling the area. You know, it's it's it taught us a lot that war. Mm-hmm. And I think I think I think uh, it's a unique war because I don't think any country has gone into through you know like what I would consider a terrorist. And I'd say from now till the day I die, they are terrorists because in these seven years I've never heard of something positive they done. You know, I've even said it to some of their fighters who came to me. I said, "Just, just explain to me what have you, what have you done that is so positive that is better than that?" Like, uh, for example, Syria in general, there was no poor people. The, the the poor guy could eat, let's say, chicken a day. Yeah. Through the war. Like, I know people, six years, didn't even smell meat. They started, the butchers start selling bones instead of meat because people cannot afford meat. You know, that's, that's you know, just to give you the extent of it. 
the diesel, for example, used to cost like 14 pence a litre. The government was supporting it. Like, I think, I don't know what the percentage was, was supporting part of it. The diesel reached uh, like 1,200 lira a litre, which is equivalent to about $3. But $3 for that, that's someone's wage of a week, you know, a week's work. It's yeah. not like Europe. Uh, like the last period of what they call Eastern Europe, Annusro and Azinki were asking people if they want to leave to pay, I think, equivalent to about 150,000, uh, sorry, $150, which was 150,000 lira. You know, mm. this is someone could work all his life, cannot save this amount of money. But if they had it, they let them out to our side. You know, and they even done a flyers on it and stuck it on their walls. You know, somebody, actually, I've seen it in the paper as well. Somebody taking picture of the flyers and showed that. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's not what it seems. It's not covered right. Uh, you know, as a soldier, I worked on a defensive point of view for four years. Four years, I was just defending my life and these civilians that were in my area. You know, I wasn't attacking. I wish if I was attacking, I could have liberated ages ago. So. How could we be it? How can I be a terrorist or the army could be a terrorist if he's a, basically on a defensive mode? Mm-hmm. You know, he, he needs a brain to work it out. Uh, but I think, I think, you know, recently, like some foreign agencies, they started sort of slowly, slowly bringing out the truth. Uh, even my own kids, when I speak to them abroad, you know, they didn't know any better. You know, my daughter told me, Dad, you're a terrorist. I said, no, how could I be a terrorist if I'm fighting ISIS and Qaeda? You know, I just want to be out of here alive. I don't mm-hmm. want to die. And if I don't do what I do, I'm going to die, whether I like it or not. And, and did, you, you, did you learn fluent Arabic uh, while you were there? Well, I had, uh, when I was a kid, I lived in the Middle East for about seven years. Uh-huh. Uh, so I had the bases there. But uh, obviously, the first two years were a bit difficult to remember in. Uh, and then lately, yeah, it's fine. It's got okay, obviously, but with with, with the conflict, mm-hmm. uh, it's got quite good actually. Even my writing, reading, got stronger. And I've lost my English, unfortunately. But now, <laughs> the last few days, the last few days has got back, uh, got back to me, sort of thing. And, and just uh, uh, you know, a final, final, final thoughts because we'll 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 end the segment in a minute. But you know, you know, what did you learn about? from your experience now i know you've been through a lot and you've 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 basically done this under the flag of another country and you know what have you learned about syria as a country as as the people have you did have you gained some kind of respect for syrians as as citizens as sovereign citizens of their country i mean what what have what's your feeling about the people in the country after this experience i gotta say the people in aleppo that uh were, i was with and they've lasted five years under under pressure, let's say global pressure. I think you know I can't say anything but respect and uh, they're, they're survivors, they're proper survivors. Like uh, nothing fazed them, you know. There's no petrol is fine. They find a way. They burn chairs. They burn this. They make petrol. Uh, there's no bread. It's 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 amazing. It's such a you know they got such history. Uh, and I think is a melting pot, you know. I mean, if you look at it 
from the days of the Crusades and going back to the Romans and that. The history they got is phenomenal. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. And sadly, all that, it's almost gone. Uh, and the people are survivors. They just want to live. They want to live happy and comfortable, which they were all living before the war. And all aiming now is to get back to that point. And uh, when we liberated Aleppo finally, a lot of people that have left the beginning of the war started coming back. You know, people who, let's say, went to Europe, went to different places to Lebanon, start coming back, trying to see the damages to their properties, uh, to their factories, to their houses. And instantly, I mean, the day we liberate, liberated Aleppo, uh, the second day, the council started cleaning the streets. And obviously, when I say cleaning, it's not like brushing a couple of uh, bins. Or, I mean, I don't know if you got any pictures of... Uh, I'll probably email you some pictures to show you what it's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're phenomenal. And I think, I think they're survivors. And I think uh, uh, if, if it wasn't for their will, they would have lost this war ages ago. Because I think there's no country or people can uh, withstand the pressure, global pressure, as they did. You know, global support, global pressure, global everything. And they actually stood in their foot and said no. And they won. I consider them they won. Because as a fighter, I never thought Aleppo was going to end. I thought it was going to end the other way around. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, my hat's off to the- them. Yeah. And I think if it wasn't their attitude and their survival, and they love for each other as well, you know, they're, they're, they're very patriot, patriotic. And, uh, you know, uh, and they appreciate it. Everyone's doing anything for them, they appreciate it. They're like little kids. Like me, you know, me, they, they, they see what I've done for them. It's like, wow, you know, they open their houses for me, they feed me, they look after me. You know, obviously that. That's that's uh, sort of showing the appreciation, and I think that they're uh, they're they're an old race. They're not a new race, you know. Uh, so yeah, I wish them all the best, and I hope I hope uh, he gets some peace because I think enough is enough. The damage is there, and the death and everything is is not worth it. All because of few politicians or few countries. Uh, you know, want to protect themselves, they want to protect this, I think is enough enough. And I think they should let the Syrian people decide what they want to do. And that's another thing they don't show you, you know. Like they've done sort of ballots and, uh, what you call it, uh, election. And the president won. The president is well loved by the people. And the irony of it, till today, he walks into, like, you know, he just, get surprised. You see him in the street with no protection, with no one. In the West, no one can do it. No leader can do it. And he'd walk normally. You know, he's a well-loved person. He's doing a great job. I think he's well-educated as well. You know, the guy didn't come from, let's say, behind the cows, as they say. You know, the guy, I think, is is well-loved. You know, that's all I could say. And, you know, I wish them all the best. And I, I... I wish literally all the world a bit of peace and that because war is not good. War it doesn't benefit, you know. doesn't benefit anyone in the end. It benefits a lot of people financially, but 
the people themselves they lose out in the end. So, and I think this is what happened there, sadly. Mm-hmm. So, my respect to all the Syrians, and particularly the people in Aleppo, for 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 the stand and the fight, mm-hmm. losing battle and they won it, and that's great. And I think that's just proving when you're right and you're determined you can do it. No, and uh, we thank you as well for sharing, uh, you know, your experience and your insights with us. Um, definitely appreciate it. We'd love to have you on the program again, especially to talk uh, about what's uh, going on, being built up in Raqqa right now uh, in, in, in next, next month. Um, so, you know, your insights will be invaluable on that, too. But um, Patrice, thank you so much uh, for joining us this week on the Sunday Wire. My pleasure. My pleasure. Have a good evening, and thank you very much for having me there. You too. You too. We'll be in touch. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is uh, Patrice uh, sharing his experiences on the front lines uh, in Aleppo over the last five years, uh, six years, in fact, um, with you this week. We're going to take a short break, uh, and we're going to connect our next guest, uh, Vanessa Bealey, here on the Sunday Wire. Stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Since 2009, 21st Century Wire has been a trusted source of alternative news with opinion, analysis, investigative reports, and features covering stories from North America to Europe to the Middle East and globally. In the last two years, we've grown dramatically. This year, we're expanding our programming and our reporting and adding to our team of dedicated contributors. But we need your help. There is a way you can support us. Go to 21wire.tv and click on 21wire membership to find out more about how you can help support our platform by subscribing and becoming a member. In return, we promise to keep it independent and keep it real. But that's not all. By subscribing to 21wire.tv, members will get access to more premium content like virtual private screenings of new documentaries and short films and get inside access to members' podcasts like On the QT with Patrick Henningsen. And also, you can see our new morning commute show, Drive by Wire with Sean Helton, as well as our new geopolitical current affairs series, Insight, shot in high definition. By becoming a member, you're also helping to support the Sunday Wire radio show, as well as all our great reporting at 21stCenturyWire.com. There's more. Members will also gain access to our fortnightly Members Situation Report newsletter, as well as special discounts on all 21 Wire merchandise up at our online store, Shop 21. Subscribe and become a member at 21wire.tv. 